where we continue on in the book of Nehemiah. We're talking about building the kingdom. Of course, Nehemiah went to rebuild um, Jerusalem and the walls and the gates and the city. And uh, we're talking about building a spiritual kingdom, the kingdom that you and I are part of, where Jesus reigns as the king and we are the servants and that we enter through faith. And so this is uh, going to be Nehemiah chapter 2 that we're talking about tonight, verses 1 through 8. And the theme is building on faith. If you remember in chapter 1, it kicks off with uh, Nehemiah hearing the report that Jerusalem is trashed, that it's not going as well as um, he had hoped, that exiles had gone back to Jerusalem, started to rebuild the city after uh, the Babylonians had destroyed it in 586 BC. And then um, over the next hundred and some years, it's about 445 BC by the time Nehemiah comes around, and there had been bunches of exiles that had come by or come back to Jerusalem um, that had been taken off Jewish people, and they had started to rebuild it. And, um, and it wasn't going. As, as well as they had hoped. Um, you can read Esther, Ezra. Uh, you'll see in those books a lot of the same names because it's all around the same time frame. And, and so we saw uh, Nehemiah's heart broken for the city and his people. And that's what you've got to have if you're going to be a kingdom builder. If you want to be a disciple maker, you've got to um, have a heart that breaks for um, people and breaks for the things that breaks God's, hearts, God's heart. You've got to love um, the Lord and love people. And then we see at the end of chapter one, Nehemiah's prayer life, that that is ultimately um, the, the the first thing in disciple making is that we're praying for people, that we have a desire to pray, that we pray um, with dependency and in submission. And so now um, we're going to get to work. This is where things start to uh, take off a little bit and we see some action. Now you hear all throughout scripture, the theme of faith. We always talk about faith, 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 faith. It's um, a little bit cliche to some degree. It's a buzzword in the church, even though it's uh, as powerful and, and uh, needed as ever before. But you hear scripture tell us that the righteous shall live by faith, shall walk by faith. And you hear that it's impossible to please God without faith. Uh, we talk about why we need faith. We talk about what faith is, but do we talk about the how? Like, how do we know that um, what we have and what we're doing is true faith? I mean, what does faith look like? And ultimately, um, it usually, like a lot of things, looks different than you think. It's kind of like premarital counseling. Uh, we idealize marriage, and you can only know um, so much uh, at certain stages of life. And I think sometimes as Christians, we feel bad um, when we're walking through um, something in faith and we're wondering like, am I doing this right? Or if we're trying to make disciples, we think, am I really even making disciples? And one of my um, heart cries is that I would encourage the church that in many cases you are. And, and if not, you're probably not too far away from being able to do it. And um, and I learned in Utah when we planted a church in 2012, um, I learned that it wasn't, it didn't take too long <laughs> for um, Tara and I to feel overwhelmed by pastoring and being in full-time ministry. And I started to find myself just in despair at different times. And I thought, man, I shouldn't be feeling this bad about life. Like I'm supposed to be an, an encourager to people and, and a pastor. And I would find myself um, driving up into the mountains and just going up until it started snowing. Even in the summertime, if you got high enough, there'd be some snow somewhere. And I would just pull over and I didn't really, um, like I wasn't in love with the with the the Psalms, you know, before going to Utah, but I would dig into the Psalms because I could understand David's heart a little bit more because I felt like I was about to die in ministry. I just felt horrible um, as I just learned what ministry was all about and just just how hard it is, to be honest. And I found myself just praying and reading the Psalms and really digging in. And those moments where I felt like I was failing in ministry, I felt guilty 
that I was even feeling this way, I often learned um, with very affirmations that I was doing exactly what I should be doing. Um, and that's what a pastor needs to do, that he needs to seek the Lord all the time. And I found myself pressing in in ways that I never did before. And it's important because when we um, walk through things that we've idealized, that we've said, well, if you just walk by faith, um, it's, everything's going to get better. Like somehow, surely it's going to be it's going to be good. Um, well, it might get worse before it gets better. And maybe your circumstances never get better. But walking by faith is still right and it's good. And we think, well, if it feels miserable and it seems hard and horrible, then we're probably doing something wrong. And sometimes it's the very things that make us feel like we're failures that affirm that we're right where we're supposed to be. Have you ever experienced that in life? Um, Nehemiah's got a bit of a messy story. And ministry, um, obviously when Jesus was on earth, he was perfect, but his, his life experience was messy. I mean, you look at people hating him, of course, the end of his life, we know what happened on the cross. Um, but even before that, people judged him, people accused him, people um, said horrible things about him, and several times backed him into corners. His life was messy, and yet he was doing exactly what the Father willed. And faith is a holy act, but it is a messy experience. And so what we're going to do tonight is we're going to kind of dissect um, these eight verses, and we're going to see what Nehemiah did when he walked by faith, and hopefully it gives you a little bit of encouragement that maybe Maybe you're not as far off as, as you thought. And uh, if you are, there's hope because um, the kingdom is built on the faith of the saints. And so we're going to jump in and um, dig in to Nehemiah chapter 2. Get some encouragement from him. In verse 1 it says, In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Remember, he's the cupbearer for the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? There is nothing but sadness. This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. And I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates in the, of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. All right, five things we're going to see when it comes to Nehemiah walking by faith. We're going to park in uh, verses 1 through 2, 1 and 2. For the first one, number one, it's normal to be scared. It's normal to be scared. Sometimes when you're scared walking through faith, you feel like maybe I'm doing something wrong. But Nehemiah, he was afraid. It says in verse one, in the month of Nisan, why is that important? It's important because it was four months after he originally heard the news 
from his brothers, from his friends, that Jerusalem was still in shambles. So four months of praying, four months of planning, four months of feeling like God is placing something on your heart and you're going to have to take a step of faith in actually accomplishing this. Have you ever been in that waiting period where you feel like, okay, he's told me something private, but I haven't gone public yet. And you're thinking, you, you start to question everything. You got all that time to think, and some days you're like, yes, let's do it. And other days you're like, mm, no, I don't think so. Maybe I'm just going crazy. You can talk yourself out of it. Tara and I spent 12 months praying and planning for the plant in Utah. We knew um, in January of 2011 that God was calling us to go to Utah. And, and for 12 full months, uh, as we finished up school, we prayed, we planned, we, we prepared for that jump. It can be a scary time. It says, I had not been sad. In his presence. I've not been sad. Now, this is important because, remember, he's the cupbearer, and the cupbearer has two primary jobs, right? In the Middle East, the cupbearer is going to, number one, pick the wine. So you got to know your wine. you got to pick what's appropriate, what's good. Um, and so they got to trust you there. you got some credibility in that. But number two, and much more important, you taste-tested the wine to make sure that no one was poisoning the king. So keep in mind, if you were in Nehemiah's position, and you're going to offer wine to the king, and you... Uh, day after day or week after week or whenever you're standing up before him, you drink this wine and then there's a time period where they got to make sure that you're not going to be killed, right? There's the possibility of poison. Um, are you going to be wanting to show a bunch of different emotions? Are you going to want to be calm and cool and collected? Right? Like he acted normal. It said that he had never been sad in his presence before. As a matter of fact, if you look at um, uh, even in the book of uh, Ezra, in chapter 4, it says that those who were, um, I believe in verse 2, it says those who were mourning couldn't come uh, into the palace of the king, the same king. Like if you were sad, if you're kind of a buzzkill, you're not supposed to be hanging out with the king. You don't want to see that. There's all kinds of issues out there. But when you're with the king, you should be an encourager, right? This is why they had court gestures and people who could come and, and, and be the life of the party. And so to be the cupbearer, you're not going to want to be erratic in your behavior, you're not going to want to um, be sad unless you're about to show him, hey, there was poison in this and I'm about to die. Because you've got credibility with the king and you don't want to risk that in any way, shape, or form. It's hard to do things for the first time. It's the first time he'd been sad in his presence. That first date you go on, that first interview you have, that first day on the job, first day of chemo. It's hard to do things for the first time, but God often asks you to do them for his glory. It's going to be uncomfortable. It's normal to be scared, is it not? And yet many of us have um, all kinds of experience where we did that thing, regardless of how scared we were. If God tells you to do it, you do it. And in the kingdom of God, when it comes to making disciples, he's going to ask you to do things you've never done. Share your faith for the first time. Serve for the first time. Give to the Lord for the first time. Start something for the first time. Jump into something that you've never had experience with for the first time. God does that. It says, this is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. So no turning back. This is where he um, is in a beautifully horrifying place. This is a sacred space. This is that moment... um, This is that moment where faith is in the womb and it's about to birth obedience and you know it's in there, but you don't know what it's going to look like. And he finally uh, takes this step of faith after four months. He knows what his face looks like. He knows whether he's sad or not. He knows how he comes across in front of the king and he finally does it. And he knows there's no turning back. 
That moment when what God has said to you in private is now being made public. No going back. That's scary. That's scary. You see, when you follow Jesus, you find out that there um, is often fear that fills the space between the calling and the comfort. When God calls you to do something, and when I say call, I mean anything he ever tells you to do in Scripture is a calling, right? When he calls you to do something, you can have a peace that means confidence where you can know, oh, I think he's telling me to do this. I know he's telling me to do this. And yet still, fear, this is why when angels appear, they often say, fear not, fear not, fear not. Number one, because angels can be scary. Number two, because people are scared. People are scared when they follow the Lord. And yet there needs to be a tangible comfort. And so you can have a peace that gives confidence and yet still need a tangible comfort. And fear often fills the gap. This is where a lot of people stop and they don't actually walk by faith. How many things has the Lord said to you? Jump into this ministry. Do that. Go to a grow group. And you, and you said, eh, it's risky. That's going to cost me something. And in that moment of just wondering, what's this going to look like? We just don't do it at all. You can pause there, but don't stop there. I remember um, when Tara and I lived here eight years ago, when we moved to Salina, right when we got married, close to 10 years ago, um, we bought a house and we had a kind of a 10 year plan. We thought we were going to be here for at least 10 years. Like we wouldn't have probably bought a house if we thought we were leaving in two years. And God made it pretty clear, um, about a year and a half in that, that we weren't going to be here, um, forever and that he was going to have us move. And I was going to continue seminary in Virginia. And we had planned and, and thought, okay, maybe in a year, maybe in two years, we'll go out there. We were taking care of some debt. We were knocking it out. We had pretty good jobs. And, um, we thought, well, We'll just save up a bunch of money and then pay for everything in cash. But technically, we could have gone um, and just trusted that he'd pay for things as we went. Um, and that was the one thing holding us back. And, of course, I've shared the story before that Tara and I, one night, we were praying. Um, it was late. I think it was like 11, um, 12 o'clock at night. And uh, we are praying about going out to Virginia and, and how we would do the Lord's will. And, um, of course, afterwards, I asked her, you know, did, did you sense God speaking to you? And it's like, yeah, I think when we talked about money and making sure that money doesn't hold us back from doing the will of God. And I was like, yeah, exactly. And we knew in that moment he's telling us to go, not in a year, not in two years, but go right then and there. And that was um, assuring because we knew, all right, it's game time. Like, I'm doing it. It's like Nehemiah. We're, we're going to step out in faith and we know we got to do this. But it wasn't until the next morning when we called mom and dad. We had to tell them, we're going when we actually needed tangible comfort. See, usually you and I, we want comfort before the faith. And so some of us don't ever walk by faith because we want the comfort first. And you need to know sometimes the comfort doesn't come before, sometimes it doesn't come after, but it comes in the faith. It comes right smack dab in the middle of it. You start taking a step and that's when God's comfort comes. If it wasn't scary, it probably wouldn't require faith. Peace comes with the calling, but comfort comes in the walking. It's normal to be scared. Verse 3. And so I said to the king, let the king live forever. If you look at the book of Daniel, uh, I want to say Daniel chapter 2. This is what 
people uh, often said in the Middle East. They would say, let the king live forever. This was just a common courtesy to the king. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves. Now, keep in mind, it's it's interesting. He says later Judah, but he doesn't say Jerusalem. Because if you go to Ezra chapter 4, again, um, you'll see that the same king actually issued a decree to stop all building in Nehemiah, or excuse me, in uh, Jerusalem. He had heard that things were, um, that that the Jews were going to rebel. And so he, he ended it. And that was part of Ezra's ministry was making sure we got this this building back up again. That was 13 years before um, the, the verse that we are in. And so he is a king that has said, stop building in Jerusalem. And then he said, okay, now you can start building again. And so he's got a history. Nehemiah knows this king's got a history with Jerusalem, but he doesn't mention Jerusalem. He says, just the city, the place of my father's graves. It lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Second thing we see in walking by faith, no safety nets allowed. No safety nets allowed. Keep in mind, Nehemiah knew what his face looked like. He knew whether he looked sad or not. He, he knew. Um, some believe that uh, because the queen was sitting beside him, that this was some sort of feast or festival um, where the king would grant um, something favorable to those around him, anyone who asked. And so some think that this was strategic on Nehemiah's part, that he was waiting for this specific feast, but it's hard to know. But either way, he could have given a weird answer. When he was afraid in verse 2, he could have said, you know what, let's just stop right there. Hey, listen, I, just, I, I haven't been getting sleep. I'm just struggling. Got issues at home. My wife and my kids. It's not going well. He could have bailed. I mean, because he, he, he showed himself to be sad, but then, then he was very afraid. But he jumps all the way in. He says, you know what, if we're going to do this, we're going all the way in. Let the king live forever. Why should I be? And then he tells him exactly. He cuts straight to the heart of the matter. There's power in that. He's not giving himself any safety nets. He's not making excuses. He's not backing down. You ever said something that you knew there was no turning back in? Some words come out of your mouth and you realize, "Uh uh-oh. You tell your coach you're going to quit. Here we go. You give your boss that two weeks notice. It's written. I've thought about it for a lot of days, but here it goes. You ask that person to go on a date. You ask that boyfriend or girlfriend to marry you. You're taking a risk. When those words come out of your mouth, you're like, yeah, I can't go back. Nehemiah's in that place where he's taking a step of faith. You see, it's often um, the case where the most meaningful events that happen in our lives are also the ones where we have the greatest potential for failure. But it's funny when you look at the church, we talk all the time about being a people of faith. It's all about faith, right? That's what Christianity is all about, faith, faith, faith. And how many times do we spend more time focused on our potential failure than walking in our faith? How many times do we um, put safety nets there so that we can have a soft landing spot? How many times has God asked you to do something and you have focused more on plan B, C, or D than plan A? How many times does he say, hey, you should go to a grow group? And you think, yeah, okay, well, I might try it. Um, If I go to the first one and it's weird, I'll just bail. Or, hey, you should serve in this ministry. Well, I'll, I'll try it. Um, and then I'll just make an excuse and tell them, I don't know if I'm good with kids if I don't like it after the first time or two. We're, already, we're thinking about ways out. We're thinking about what happens if this doesn't go well. You need to share your faith with your coworker. Okay, I know, God, you've told me a whole bunch of times. Well, they usually sit over here. If they, um, 
If they come back after lunch and they're in a good mood, then I will share my faith. If they, oh, no, 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 no. Monday, if they ask about church, because they've done it a couple times, if they ask about church, then I will. Wait, if they ask me directly to share the life, death, and resurrection with Jesus Christ with them because their struggles need the gospel and they know the gospel, then I will share my faith. Like, we just put all these stipulations and conditions around actually doing it. We talk ourselves out of ever walking by faith. You ever do that? You ever bail yourself out of something before you even do it? You talk yourself out of it. I'm convinced the church has so many potential ministries we could do, but the people are insecure. Not in what God has said, but just in what it looks like, and so they don't ever do it. So they just get scared. We create safety nets all the time. We try to take the risk out of faith, but you've got to understand this. Faith ultimately isn't about your life. It's about God's glory. And when it comes to you potentially failing in something God asks you to do, you need to know a couple things. Success in the kingdom of God is not the same as the business world or just the world in general. Success is you saying yes when he says go. You can't fail when you walk by faith, Right? You've already succeeded. If you obey God, you've succeeded. Regardless, I could go plant a church and everyone could say, we hate your church, it's horrible, we're never coming back. Um, And I could say, I'm a failure. In the eyes of the world, um, they might say that. But if I said yes when God said, go plant that church, then I was as successful as I could ever be. But you've got to understand, when it comes to your potential failure and the things God asks you to do, the distance between... um, the, the distance of your failure, your potential fall, is equal to the height of God's glory. And so this is why the church needs to make sure we're not um, playing it safe and secure and comfortable. And we need to keep risk in faith because these are the moments when our backs are up against the wall that God gets the most glory. Um, but it's also the scariest times, right? This is why I can get up there on a Sunday and say, we got $160,000 pledged over two years and feel incredible about it. Knowing commercial real estate, if God has us go buy a building, could cost way more than that. But I know this is the moment when, when only God's power can shine through because everyone, everyone with a sense of reason and rationale is going to look at that and say, this ain't looking too hopeful. And I say, this is exactly where we need to be because God's going to do something and he's going to get a ton of glory. A ton of glory. Tara and I, it was probably like four or five years ago, we went to the Grand Canyon when we lived out in Utah, and we went in January, and um, it was like negative 17. We were down there for another event, and so we were like, well, how many times you could go to the Grand Canyon? So we decided to go. It just happened to be freezing, and so we're like, well, let's go hike a trail. We got to hike a trail. What else is there to do at the Grand Canyon? Either take a look or go hiking like there's not much to do there um and, and so we decided um we were going to do this and so we went because there's ice everywhere we we went to the visitor center and it was a huge visitor center and i came across this book i've probably shared this story before i've probably shared all my stories before but anyway i'm become, I've, I've, i need a lifetime full of stories um i'm already rehashing them i found this book is like this thick and it was just called the deaths of the grand canyon and I started going through it. And it was just all the people in history that had died, fallen off a cliff, whatever, at the Grand Canyon. I mean, it was huge. I told Tara, I was like, look at how big this thing is. People are so excited, though. They're walking around. They're excited. We're going to go do something with the Grand Canyon. I'm thinking, like, I know, like, there's this inherent belief because this is a national park that there's, like, safety barriers and stuff. But, like, once you get out there, and we've seen this in a lot of national parks, like, 
danger is danger. And like people just from all over the world come to these national parks. They let dogs, little kids run around. And like you can die at a lot of different points. And, and people just are like, they just do whatever. And I'm thinking, this is crazy. I bet you most people don't think this many people have died in this Grand Canyon. And so we buy our little ice shoes because we want to add to this book. And we, we buy these little crampon things that are supposed to dig into the ice. And we start down the trail. And you can see the trail. It goes ooh, down, 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 down. And it goes 5,000 feet down. We weren't going to go anywhere close to that, right? Um, but as we're walking along the edge, I'm thinking, like, there's no guardrails. There's no nothing. We're just literally walking along the edge of the Grand Canyon. And there's ice and snow on the ground. I said, if we just slip just a little bit, like, it's all over. And so we get on this trail. And the shaded parts had ice. It's only probably a little bit bigger uh, than this, probably like 10 feet wide. And it goes all the way down. And if you fall, you're hundreds and hundreds and maybe even a thousand feet just straight down, straight down. And to to top it off, you got people with with like donkeys, mules coming up this thing. And I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. I'm hugging the wall. Like this is ridiculous. I am not going to be, I'd rather get smashed into a wall by a donkey than kicked off the Grand Canyon by a donkey. You you know, you got to pick the lesser of the two evils at some point. But I remember just telling Tara the whole way, I'm like, this is crazy. People are just running around like it's nothing. They're just hiking down like it's nothing. It's negative 17 and we're about to slide off the edge of the Grand Canyon and people are acting like this is just normal. Like they're clueless or they have a ton of faith. But there's no safety nets. And people think, I think they think inherently there's safety nets. And yet I see more caution in the church than visitors at the Grand Canyon. Willingly, like, let's just go slide down the Grand Canyon. (laughs) And I see more people talking themselves out of big steps of faith in the church, providing safety nets, getting that plan B, plan C, plan D all ready to go. Than you do the Grand Canyon. There shouldn't be more faith in the Grand Canyon than there is the church. Don't cater to your what ifs. Planning is good when you're planning on faith, not failure. You guys having fun yet? This is good. Sorry, scared everyone else away, apparently. Verse 4. Nehemiah says, then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. This is my favorite verse out of all of it. Third thing we see. So you got to choose when you're walking by faith. You got to choose to abide, not abandon. Choose to abide, not abandon. So it's normal to be scared. No safety nets allowed. But you got to choose also to abide, not abandon. Here's my, my favorite part. Right in the middle of this. Like, picture this. You're standing before the king. You work for the king. You have credibility with the king. And then all of a sudden, everything changes. You show your face to be sad. He says, what's going on? You say, here's what's going on. And then he gets really scared. And and then it says, what do you want? Now you got to ask. This is the big ask. This is where you got to step out in faith and say exactly what you know God is telling you to ask this king. Keep in mind, when you go before a king in this day and things don't go well, it's not a little slap on the wrist. It can be death for somebody. Read Esther (laughs) and find out about Mordecai's nemesis if, if you don't believe me. But what does he do? He stops and prays. 
Like just picture you're in the middle of this, this intense scene in life. And you're like, oh my gosh, what am I going to say before the king? And there's people around and the queen's sitting there. And all the people who work with you are like, what are you doing? Just give him the wine. Step back. Don't do this, man. You're, you're committing career suicide. This is not good. And, and, and he stops and he prays in the middle of it. Because we saw in, in, in verse, or in, excuse me, in chapter one, that he's a man of prayer. He's been signed praying. I love this, and this is, this, is, this is crucial for us because here's what I've found over the years with disciples is those who are new to the faith generally seek God reactively. Those who are maturing in the faith seek God proactively, but those who are mature in the faith seek God actively. Well, what I mean is those who are new to the faith, if they're, if they're babies and they're toddlers in the faith, they will go do their own path, but know they got Jesus in their life, and when they screw it up, they'll reactively come back to God and say, God, bail me out of whatever I just did. But then they start to get some sense and the Holy Spirit guides them and they jump into God's word and they realize, um, you know what? Maybe I should go to God before I make stupid decisions in life and I should be proactive about seeking him. And so then as they mature, they say, you know what? I'm going to go to God in the morning, not just at night. And I'm going to come before and I'm going to say, God, what do you want me to do with my life? Maybe you can guide me and I'll trust you on the front end, not just on the back end. But those who really mature in the faith They don't just seek God proactively or reactively, but actively in the midst of the chaos. What do you do in the midst of your chaos? Like when life gets busy, when it gets hard, what do you do? Do you tend to put your spiritual life on the back burner? Or is it when that's when things get heated up? Do you grow the most when you're busy? Or do you neglect God the most when you're busy? Because you've got the potential to grow incredible amounts. If you seek God actively, when your life becomes a prayer, when, when, when you don't just bookend your day with prayer, but your whole day is a prayer. See, some of us abandon God. We like to have kind of a carrier pigeon type of faith where we get a message from God and then we run from God. But you've got to understand God will never ask you to do something that doesn't require you to press into him. He'll never ask you to do something that forces you away from him, only what pulls you into him. You've got to change your mindset from doing things for God to doing things with God. That's the beautiful part of disciple making is you're part of an adventure that is amazing. The mission of God is that God has reached you, but then wants to walk with you as he reaches other people. He pulls you along. You're not doing something for him. You couldn't do it on your own anyway. You're doing it with him because he lives in you. And there's lots of imagery in the New Testament about our relationship with Jesus. We talk all the time, you got to walk with him. you got to follow him. But one of the primary imageries of the Christian faith is that we abide in him. Jesus says, abide, 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 all throughout the Gospel of John. And, and, and Paul tells us that we live in Christ. Not just with him, not just following him, but in him. God and you, you and God. This is why when you see the Father, that you can even talk to him, because when he sees you, he sees the blood of his Son. He sees you and his Son as one. Don't ever forget that abiding in Christ, staying in Christ, living in Christ is your first call. All other calls will be secondary. I'll never force you away from God. Verses 5 and 6, and 7 and 8, actually. Nehemiah says, And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, 
How long will you be gone? And when will you return? Remember, this is an interesting part of Nehemiah. Nobody knows. We don't have like a long history of Nehemiah's life before this, but he ends up being the governor for 12 years, the governor there in Judah. But apparently he probably didn't ask to be there for 12 years um, at this moment in the story because I doubt the king would be like, hey, you're leaving for 12 years? I'm pumped. But I think he probably came back several times, at least scholars believe he did. But he, he, he was a cupbearer, and all of a sudden he becomes the builder, the planner, the strategist, the governor. He did a whole bunch of stuff, and who knows what he may ever um, have had experience in, but God used him in powerful ways. How long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. Verse 7 and the first part of verse 8. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the the, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates So he wants to rebuild the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city, huge wall, and for the house that I shall occupy. So he's saying, I'm going to live here. This is going to be ultimately the governor's house. Fourth thing we see is you've got to embrace the process. You've got to embrace the process. What is happening in these verses? Nehemiah, now that he, he's asked and taken this big step of faith, he's actually starting to work out the details. Hey, hey will you help me with this? And, oh, yeah, I'll help you with that. Well, how long are you going to be gone? Well, I'm going to be gone this long. And, well, what about this? Um, well, I'm going to need lumber. And so let's get uh, Asaph involved. And so he had thought this through. He had planned this out. He knew what he needed, and he asked it. Um, and he's working out the details. When you walk by faith, it's a process. You hate processes? Some of us, we don't like long processes. We don't like standing in line. We don't like waiting for things. We talk about this foster care thing. Um, People ask, you know, on a fairly regular basis, how's the foster care thing going? We're in the process. We did a 10-week class. Then you got more paperwork than you've ever known what to do with. I actually appreciate the state of Kansas for, um, you can tell Tara's, probably filling out most of the paperwork as I say this, but like, I appreciate the fact that they're, they're giving us so much, like you, they'd weed you out. You got to really want it, to be honest. You got to want it because there's a lot of opportunity to bail. But when you and I are walking in faith, we want to know the next steps, don't we? All the time. We get impatient. And, and here's the thing. We can recognize just like this, it is a physical process There's lots of details to be worked out, but you take it one step at a time. And God doesn't want you to get so caught up in, do I take a step to the left, take a step to the right? Do I move to this city? Do I enroll in that school? What's going to happen physically? He doesn't want you to get so caught up in the physical process that you forget the spiritual process he's doing in here. Because everything, the journey of faith is to glorify God. It's to bring people into the kingdom, but it's to expand the kingdom in your own heart. It's sanctification, which is ultimately... The process of that new heart that you received at salvation and your life starting to reflect that new heart. That you become more like Christ in your behavior, in your action. And that what happened at salvation is worked out through the rest of your life until you see Jesus face to face. This is why the Christian life should never be boring. There should always be continual change. Because you're adapting to that new heart, that spiritual heart. And you've got to embrace that. Some, how, many times, how many times has God been doing something in your life and you just want through it? Right? We feel that all the time. Let's just get through it. If it looks like a long journey, let's just get through it. 
haven't read the book, but I appreciate the title. Eugene Peterson's A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. What a name. What a title. It's a long obedience in the same direction following Jesus. I, I could tell you so many times in... Um, really over the last two years that I have despised in my heart the idea of going through a building campaign, not having been raised in church. I just never, ever pictured myself (laughs) being part of a building campaign in any way, shape, or form. Like, you generally don't hear of good things. Nobody nobody looks fondly back at building campaigns. They usually think, oh, that was a mess. We didn't know what we were doing. That was horrible. The church asked for a bunch of money. Just this awkwardness all the way around. It wore us out. I was on a team. We met for every week for 16 years talking about where we were going to be, what we were going to do. Like you just hear how it wears people out. Well, after, after the building campaign, the pastor, that's when pastors normally leave. That's when church members leave because they don't like the bill. I mean, there's just so many things. You're like, oh my gosh, please, God, there's such a beautiful thing happening here. Why do we have to go through that? It feels like it's going to derail us. It feels like it's going to take us down another path. We don't want to be the church. Everyone loves cross points. Like, oh, this is new. This is great. Um, but we don't want to be that church that goes in and gets into a different location. And then we change somehow our identity and so on and so forth. And, and some of that's legit. I, I understand the concerns there. But um, I've had to seek God in ways that I wouldn't otherwise. Last night, two nights ago, when I'm up at 2.30, because I get anonymous letters in the mail from church members telling me that we should do things different, and I can't have a conversation with them, because I don't know their name. I tell Tara, I said, it's kind of like when, if someone had a mask on, and they opened the house of your, the door of your house, and said, hey, you're doing everything wrong, just want to let you know, have a good day, and shut the door and drive off, like, you'd be like, what am I supposed to do with that? What am I supposed to do with that? And that's one example of just the process of this. But yet I see a beauty in it because I see God growing me. And I told someone the other day, I feel in some ways more despair than I have in ministry in a long time. And yet um, I know this is an incredible opportunity for growth and maturation. And one of my prayers um, that I've prayed in in ministry, um, recognizing that God is doing a work in this church, is God mature me or replace me? recognizing that I've got to um, I've got to mature and the character of this church won't probably surpass the character of those leading it because they won't know how to lead them into something that they aren't experiencing themselves. Although it's not obviously entirely impossible as the character of Christ can shine through and always does. But I say all that to say, I've come to um, see an incredible beauty in the process and recognizing that God is having us do this physical thing that honestly, I, I could, I don't want to say I could care less, but I just recognize it's just a building. It's just facilities. It's just stuff. It's all going to burn, but he's refining his church in a powerful way. And I don't want the people to lose that. I don't want them to not see that that's what it's ultimately about. God will not ask us to ever look into facilities without wanting to renew and refine our hearts. That's what it's always about. And if you don't embrace, if you think faith is just about the physical and you don't understand the spiritual work being done, then you won't embrace the process. And you won't realize, this is why God asks you to do sometimes pretty goofy things in life. You ever had God ask you to do something that you just thought was weird and off the wall? You thought, I'm not even sure how that accomplished anything. 
Sometimes I'm convinced God will ask you to do something simple or complex just for the sake of seeing if you'll do it. Just to test. Will you actually pull over and hand them that? Will you actually start that conversation? Because he wants to see your heart. Don't get antsy in faith. Recognize there's a tension between accomplishing something physically, but God accomplishing something spiritually in you. Last but not least, verse 8b, the second part of it, says, And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Fifth thing we see is you've got to trust the presence of the greater king. So right now, Nehemiah is before a king, the king of Persia. He's in a foreign land. And the king granted him what he asked, but he recognized there's a greater king involved. How does he know and have this confidence that some of us lack? Let's be honest. We've walked by faith before and we've wondered, is God really in this? Is God really in this? How do I know that God's actually asking me? I'm insecure and in even hearing from God. And yet we've got to trust that the hand of a greater king is on us. You see, Nehemiah's confidence that God's hand was on this was the provision that this earthly king was saying, you can have my stuff. I'll take care of it. If God wills it, here you go. This king, he don't really have that much control over his life. God's directing his steps, whether this guy follows the the Lord or not. But you and I, we have our confidence of the presence of a greater king in our life because of the cross and the provision of Jesus and the wrath of God being poured out on him when it should have been poured out on us and recognizing that God provided the ultimate sacrifice with his son. In this very place, don't don't lose this in the whole book of Nehemiah, the very place that ultimately Nehemiah is going to rebuild is the very place that the greater offering was sacrificed 400 plus years after all this went down. You thought John the Baptist was preparing the way. Nehemiah is rebuilding the city of the Lord. Got to wonder, as he's rebuilding those walls, if he has any idea what's about to happen, even in 440 years, in that same city. All his offering, all his sacrifices would be trumped by a much greater sacrifice. You and I know that Jesus left heaven 2,000 years ago so that we could be with God, so that we could be reconciled as sinners turned into saints by the blood of Christ, that you and I are sealed with the Spirit. Here's what I don't want you to ever, ever, ever listen here. Do not find yourself a Christian wondering whether the presence of God is with you. I know when you walk by faith, you often feel like tangibly, like I don't know if God's here. I can't, I can't feel God, but you know God's with you because the very nature of being a Christian, the moment you placed your faith in him spiritually, God placed his Holy Spirit in you. And Paul says we are sealed with the Holy Spirit so that you don't ever, this is one of the blessings. This is, this is, this is part of being a Christian. You don't ever, ever have to wonder. I know an evangelical world at kids camp. I know every, I know we wonder. It's part of the culture that you you can wonder, is God with me? Is God with me? But if you're faith is in Christ, you can have the confidence that God will never leave you or forsake you. That he is in you. That you are sealed by the Spirit of God that he can't leave you because he can't break his own promises. The promises of God are irrevocable. The callings of God are irrevocable. The presence of God changes everything. Silas, he, um, and I'll, I'll wrap it up with this. 
he's been having um, nightmares recently, and he sleeps downstairs. He's got basically the whole basement to himself. We've got a tiny house, so it's like this cafe with a basement. Um, it's, an, it's a nice house, but it's just, just smaller, and so um, for him to be downstairs is probably not that big of a deal, but he... he um, he does well, and he's got his room, and he's got his big old bed, and he um, has been waking up saying, help me, help me in the middle of the night, and, and he's got um, just just nightmares. He's just to that stage in life where he's starting to have them, and, and he, he can understand them enough to say that's what's going on, and um, we hear him crying out, and so we go down, and we comfort him, and I say, buddy, you know I'm in the same house. I said, Sai, you know this house is little. Like, I'm never very far away. Like, we're in the same house. This is your safe place. This is where you can be comfortable. This is what you can enjoy. I said, think about God. You, you Like, this is, it's okay, buddy. This is a safe place. It's not scary. But it's dark, and he's got night lights, and there's shadows on the walls. And so he, he gets scared. He gets freaked out about his own room and about the thoughts in his head. And the other night, and I'm sure the parenting books would say, don't do this. You don't want him to become dependent on you. But the other night when he had a, a nightmare um, and he called out to me and I came down and I told him those things and he knew those things cognitively that we were in the same house. And I, I just said, scoot over, buddy. I'm going to lay with you. And it's three, four in the morning. And, you know, I'm too big for that bed. And my head's way over his head and, and my knees are way below his knees. And I'm just kind of, you know, cradling him a little bit. And he feels my big hands, you know, wrap around him. And he just kind of, just a little boy still. Um, and, and I just snuggled with him and, um, he was just silent. And the reason I did that was because I wanted him in that moment. He called out to me and I can tell him over and over and over. I can tell him we're in the same house, buddy. But I wanted him to feel the presence of his father with him in that moment, to know that you can be in the same circumstance that was once incredibly scary and nothing in that circumstance changed except the presence of the Father. And the presence of the Father trumps the circumstance all day long. The wind and the waves obey Him. The rocks cry out. Nature obeys Him. Everything at the sound of His voice does what He wants. And when He enters into your circumstance, you can go through the exact same thing in two different experiences. One can be completely peaceful, can be horrified. Nothing changes except the presence of the Father. It's my prayer. You know that you and the Father are in the same house. Your body is a temple. If you're a Christian, if your faith is in Christ, you can have that knowledge. But it's my prayer that you tangibly experience the presence of the Father. You can have that. You need to, you need to be seeking Him in prayer. You need to be pressing forth in perseverance and, and digging into His Word. But those of you who have done those things know that you can experience the tangible comfort that comes with knowing and experiencing the presence of the Father. But like Silas... I probably wouldn't have come down there at three in the morning and snuggled him unless he called out. You got to call out. I don't know what God's asking you to walk in faith in right now. Especially when it comes to making disciples. Maybe he wants you to get out of your comfort zone in a way that you haven't before. Do something for the first time. Maybe revisit something he told you to do a long time ago. But you need to know you don't ever, if your faith is in Christ, you don't ever have to question the presence of God. And I'll, I'll leave you with this simple practical thing because I know sometimes it's hard. You wonder, am I hearing from God? Of course, you've you got to dig into his word. You don't ever have to question if you hear from him because his word is his word. Every time you read it, you're hearing from him. 
But I'll say this, if you find yourself in a spot, maybe, um, maybe you, you did what the Lord would have you not do. And you realize I need to repent. I need to turn around. I need to go back to him. I, I, um, maybe you find yourself in no man's land where he, he said, I think he told me to go out here, but I must have missed steps two, three, and four because I don't, I don't know what to do next. Maybe you're just confused. If there's one thing I could tell you, one question to ask yourself, recognizing that faith is always about the glory of God. One question that will help you no matter where you are in, in the walk right now. For the rest of your life, you ask yourself this one question, you'll be okay. In your circumstance, you ask this, how can I glorify God? If you're abiding in him, recognizing that's always the first way he's going to be glorified. If you're pressing into him, if you're in his word, if you're, if you're talking to him and listening to him and you still have confusion about the next step, because sometimes that happens. But you ask yourself this, right now, in this moment, I can glorify God. I can make his name famous. I can bring him glory and praise somehow. How do I do that? He'll always tell you how. And you can always do that. And you don't have to question the last 10 steps you took and how you got to where you got. There's forgiveness. But if you focus on the glory of God, he's a good father. He, he wants to be glorified and he's not going to hide from you. You'll be okay. Let's pray.